heard a story a long time ago about a couple of newlyweds. They were spending their first day in their new home as a new couple, as a new family. And the wife wanted to make everything perfect. She wanted to send her husband off to work just absolutely perfect. So she got up early and she made breakfast. And she got the bacon just right. Eggs were, were perfect. She made toast. She made coffee. She got everything ready. And he came downstairs and was surprised to see it all. And he ate his breakfast. And then he got up and he said, well, that's not how mom used to do it. She, she may have been a little discouraged. And so the next day, she just resolved that she was going to do it right this time. So she, the bacon was just a little more crisp, but you know, just, just right. The eggs, they weren't too runny. They were perfect. She, she buttered his toast for him and the coffee. She made it a little stronger, a little bolder. He, he came down and ate his breakfast and got up and he said, well, that's, that's not how mom used to do it. The third day, she'd had enough of him. She got up early. She burnt the bacon to a crisp. She, she made the eggs hard and rubbery. And she just, every time the toast would pop out of the toaster, she would hit the button again. It just absolutely black. And she, she boiled the coffee down to nothing. And he got up and he saw that breakfast. And he said, now that is exactly how mom used to do it. What I love about that story is... It reminds us of the problems of focusing on the past. See, when we look at the past, when all we talk about is the past, we see things the way we want to see them, the way we choose to remember them. When we remember the past, we only remember the things we want to remember. We remember them through a filter that we can't trust because we don't see a complete picture. And if you grew up and all you ever knew was burned bacon and, and, and ruined eggs and horrible coffee, then, then you might get used to that. And you might also miss out on the blessing that's been prepared for you here and now. You see, that's, that's where Haggai's audience was. That's where we find them in chapter 2. They've come home from captivity. They've been away from Jerusalem for 70 years. But rather than rebuild the temple that was in ruins, they chose to take care of themselves first. So they all have new homes, very nice homes. They, they have new lives. They have this new freedom. And then finally, we, what we saw last week in chapter 1, God says to them, well, your houses look nice. What about mine? What about my home? And so they commit to rebuild the temple at the end of chapter 1, and, and God commits to them. At the end of chapter 1 of Haggai, God says to them, I am with you. The call of the book of Haggai, the call throughout this book is to put God first, before our own comfort, before our own plans, and as odd as it may sound, to put God even before our past. The past can be a trap. It can be a very comfortable trap. It can be a, a paralyzing trap. And if we're not careful, we never move ahead to the life that God has called us to. See, the problem is we deceive ourselves with memories of the past. That's, that's where Haggai's audience was. They, the past had become a very deceptive problem for them. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as you see on the screen, it's 
page 791 in those blue Bibles that we have there in the pews for you. We encourage you to follow along. I want to begin with just the first three verses of Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, well, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And again, for the third time in this little book, Haggai gives us the exact date that this was spoken, the exact date that, that this prophecy was received. This, by our reckoning, by our calendars, this is October 17th, 520 years before the birth of Christ. October 17th, 520 B.C. If you remember from last week, it's not even been a month. It's not even been a month since the, the building program, the rebuilding of the temple has begun. Not even been a month, and they're already discouraged. And rather than talking about what God was doing among them now, all they could talk about was the good old days. All they could focus on was the, the old temple and how beautiful it was and how big it was and how much better it was than the one that they were building. Here's the problem. That temple had been destroyed 66 years ago. That temple was destroyed 66 years ago. How well do you think they really remembered it? How well did they really remember this temple that had been gone for a, a better than a generation? God asks in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? How well... Would your memory work after 66 years? I could ask some of you that. Not, not everyone, but I could ask some of you that. How, how well would your memory be after 66 years? Don't you think perspectives change? And, and who was really left to remember? I mean, you would have to be at least 70. And these people have been in captivity. They've come back home. There's not a lot of people left who remember the temple the way it was. Four years ago, after the church fire, we met for a little over a year over in the old grade school, over in the, uh, the, the gymnasium at the old grade school. And, and you know, I, I went to school there. I went to grade school there. I went to kindergarten through third grade. I went to school in that, in that building. I, I remember it well. When we went back four years ago to worship, I was amazed at how much smaller it had gotten than it used to be. Do you remember down the hallways, there's that yellow tile and... When I was like in kindergarten, that was, that was the test. Can you touch the top of the tile? You know, the, the tile was, it went all the way up to about here. And could you touch that? Could you reach up and touch that? That, that tile is now about here, you know? It's, it's changed. You know, the, the perspective has changed for me, and, and it didn't look the same. Now, that was only about 40 years, okay? That wasn't 66 years. What about 66 years? How much different would it look? See, that's the problem with the past. It could be a problem for us, and it was a problem for them. There are no blessings for looking backwards. There, there are no blessings for, for looking backwards. The only, there are only problems for looking backwards. For them, there were three big problems with looking backwards. Number one, the, the view is only superficial. When we look backwards, we, we only see the superficial. Yeah, Solomon's temple was gorgeous. It was beautiful. There was gold, and it was huge, and it had all this big stuff. 
But there were real problems in Israel that led to their downfall, that led to their captivity. You realize that for better than a generation, they lost their copy of the Bible. <laughs> Can you imagine? For better than a generation, they just they forgot where it was. They lost their copy of the Bible. And it's not until this King Josiah comes along and he's going to reform and he's going to change things and he wants the temple cleaned up and they're sweeping around and they, they find this book just laying there. And it, they didn't know what it was. And finally someone said, that's the Word of God. And they, they were amazed. They lost the Bible. They had real problems. They were unfaithful. They were immoral. They had abandoned God. And a pretty temple didn't fix any of those problems. Now, in addition to that, this was a new generation that didn't have anything at all to do with that older temple. That, that had been 70 years ago, and even those people hadn't built it. It had been built generations earlier than that. It wasn't their lives. It wasn't their leaders. It wasn't their faithfulness, and it wasn't their sin that caused the downfall. Nor was it they who built it. They weren't the ones who covered it in gold and, and silver. They didn't make it grand. But I think the third problem that they had was, was one that we need to understand. And that was, the third problem was God wasn't going backwards. God wasn't going to make things the same way they had been before. God wasn't going to go backwards. He never does. And, and if we want to find Him, we can't go backwards. We can only go forwards. The Word that came through Haggai continues to show us that God promises to be present in the present. God promises to be present right here, right now. And that, that should be self-explanatory, but they needed to hear it. I think we need to hear it also. There is this tension. There was a tension for them. The temple of the past was so much more beautiful. But you know, the failures of the past, they were huge also. They, they were those failures of their past. That was huge. And, and we've felt that before. We, we know we've screwed up in the past. We know we've made mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes paralyzed us in the present. We are afraid to move forward because of our past mistakes. We are afraid of failing again. We are afraid of failing now. God says, you remember that old temple? Verse 3 says, you remember the old temple? Look at this one. Does it even compare? It's nothing compared to the old one. And then in verse 4, he says, yet now. Now that's a, that's a very direct transition. Yet now. You can't miss that. Yet now, let's stop worrying about the past. Yet now, that's not your story. Yet now, here is your story. And he says in verse 4, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Last week we saw the promise in chapter 1, verse 13, where God said, I am with you, declares the Lord. And that's repeated here in, in verses 4 and 5, but it's repeated not as, a, not as a sentiment. It's not just something to make you feel better. Well, you know, God, God is with you. You know, don't feel so alone. It's not just some sweet little thing that you'd find in a Hallmark card or maybe someone would put it on a Facebook post and you'd, you'd like and share it, you know, because it sounds good. It's not just a sentiment. It's to energize us. It, it's to motivate us. He says, work for I am with you. Get busy for I am with you. You cannot fail for I am with you. 
And you notice he says, be strong. He's, he says it three times. Be strong, Zerubbabel, the governor. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all the people. That's an imperative. It's a, it's a command. It's, it's commanded based on the truth of God's promise. Since I am with you, be strong. Since I have made a covenant with you, be strong. Since I have promised you my spirit, be strong. And he follows that up with those words, fear not. Fear not. You, you see that a lot in the Bible. You notice all the times that fear not happens? I mean, it's, it's there in the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament when the angels appear and, and tell the shepherds about the birth of Jesus. What's the first thing that they tell them? Fear not. You, know, you see it so much in the Bible, you may not realize this, but it's a military phrase. It's a military command. It's what the, the commanding officer would say to the warriors as they were moving into battle. The commanding officer would yell out, fear not, and then everybody would move into battle. In other words, you don't hear the words fear not and go, that's a relief, I'm going to go take a nap. Fear not means you're going to get busy. Fear not means that you're going to be active. Fear not means that you, you're going to have to, to do something. And so he says, fear not. And he also says, be strong. Three times, be strong, be strong, be strong. It means you're going to put on your big boy britches, okay? It means you're going to get busy. It means that, that, that there are things that are going to get serious. And as you look at the challenges that are before you, and you say, I can't do this on my own. God says, fear not. I am with you, therefore you can work. Therefore you can do this. Your past can't stop you. The future can't frighten you. You have everything you need here and now. Fear not. Be strong. Work, for I am with you. And when we do that, we see that focusing on God in the present brings the promise of peace. When we focus on God here and now, it brings the promise of peace. You know what the worst part about their discouragement was? I mean, they were discouraged because this temple that they were building was nothing compared to the old temple. You know what the very worst part of that discouragement was? They were right. It didn't compare. It didn't compare with the old temple. It didn't compare with the size. It didn't com compare with the beauty. It was nothing compared to the old temple. The temple of the past had been bigger. It had been more beautiful. It was, there was more wealth and more splendor on display. You know, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory like that? How do you, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, if you go back to 2 Chronicles, and if you want to turn back, this is on, on page 359 in those Bibles, if you want to turn back real quick. But if you go back to 2 Chronicles, for four, chap four chapters, four chapters at the beginning of 2 Chronicles, we have a list of, of everything that Solomon did to build the temple. We have a list of, of the people that he hired to build the temple, the, the, the goods that he collected, and, and the beauty and the size of the temple. For four chapters, we have details about the old temple. He says in chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles, verse 15, it said that, and the king, that is Solomon, made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. Can you imagine that? Silver and gold as common as stone. You're walking along the road and you see like a gold nugget laying there. You go, oh, look at that. You know, is it worth me bending over to pick it up? It's as common as stone, you know. It's, it's just there. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Hiram, king of Tyre, sends a worker to, to help Solomon with the temple. And Hiram says, Now I have sent a skilled man who, 
who has understanding, Haram Abi is his name, the son of a woman of the daughter of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, and he is trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, blue, and crimson fabrics, and fine linens, and to do all sorts of engravings and execute any design that may be assigned to him with your craftsmen and the craftsmen of my Lord, David, your father. So they had skilled craftsmen who could work in in any kind of stone. They could make any kind of design. They could also work with fabrics. They could, they could create anything they want, anything to make that temple beautiful. You go on over into chapter 3, verse 15, and it tells about the, the size and the, the, the grandeur of the temple. And it says in verse 15, in the front of the house, in the front of the temple, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace, and he put them on the tops of the pillars, and he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on chains, and he set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south and one on the north. That on the south he called Jacob, and, and that on the north he called Boaz. So we see these two gigantic pillars out in front of the temple. And then in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, he says, and he made ten golden lampstands as prescribed and set them in the temple. Five on the south side, five on the north. He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple. Five on the south side and five on the north. And he made a hundred basins of gold. And he made a court of the priests over the great court and doors for the court and overlaid those doors with bronze. And he set the sea on the southeast corner of the house. Four chapters about the beauty of Solomon's temple. Four chapters about the opulence. Four chapters about the wealth. Four chapters about this incredible structure. Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. One verse. What does it say? Go up to the hills and bring wood and build this house. That's it. That's all the instructions that they were given for the temple that they were building in their day. Now, yes, it was more than wood, and you know, there was more involved in it, but that's it. Not four chapters of gold and silver and bronze. Not four chapters of, of workmen who are skilled, the best in the world. One verse. Go to the hills, get wood, build this house. That's it. Was it going to be as big? No. Was it going to be as beautiful? Not if you're viewing it from, a, from the physical standpoint. It, it was nothing. But look at what God had promised. He says there in verse 8, Go to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He promises He will take pleasure in it. He will be glorified. The promise is even greater here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The former temple had been covered in gold and silver. Solomon had made silver and gold as common as stone in his day. This one may have lacked that, but was God any poorer? Was God any poorer because this one wasn't as beautiful as the old one? No, God says 
the silver is mine. The gold is mine. It, it's still mine. Your weakness does not diminish me. The things that you lack, they do not diminish me. They do not cheapen me. I am still God. And there's times when like these people, like the people of Judah, we're, we're very aware of what we lack. We're very aware of what we don't have. But you know, the, the beauty of Solomon's temple didn't belong to Solomon. The beauty of Solomon's temple didn't belong to the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem. It, it belonged to God, and, and it was still His. These people had been under the oppression of the Persians. They had no power of their own, and yet God was still God. Your sin does not diminish God. Your mistakes do not diminish God. Your lack does not diminish God. Whatever it is that causes you to feel overwhelmed or inadequate, it doesn't diminish God. And it doesn't diminish His presence. And with His presence comes peace. It's very important that you realize those promises there in verses 6-9, through those promises directly affect you. Those promises are, are more about you than they were about those people. Those, those promises are for you. Unless, unless you're Jewish. And I, every now and then I have to stop. Is anyone here Jewish? Because, you know, we have to stop and think. Maybe, maybe some of us are. But, but he speaks about the nations here. That's everybody who's, who's not Jewish. That's all the rest of us. You know, he's talking about the nations. And he says there in verse 7 of chapter 2, uh, he says, um, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The treasures of all nations. It's not their wealth. It's not the wealth of the other nations. It is what the nations treasure the most. The NIV is a little more direct with its translation. The NIV says, I will fill this house with the desired of the nations. The one that the nations have desired. It took 520 years for that promise to be fulfilled when Joseph and Mary brought their new baby into the temple. When they brought Jesus into the temple to present Him uh, on, his, on His eighth day, Simeon, uh, a man of God, a man of faith, had been waiting in the temple, waiting for the, the coming of the Messiah. And if you remember the story there in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people Israel. And God says, in this place, I will give peace. You realize that that was beyond their imagination. They couldn't have imagined a promise like that. In this place, I will give peace. They've just gotten back from 70 years of captivity. They are only there because the Persians let them go back. Uh, they are only there because they are still under the thumb of their oppressors, and, and they will be under the thumb of their oppressors for, for 400, 500 more years, then longer. Peace seemed impossible, and yet they, they craved it. And maybe you've been there with the pressures and, and pain all around you. Sometimes it just seems like we move from one crisis to another. We get one problem taken care of and another one pops up. You know, we take care of this and, and we wonder, how many more of these can I do? How, many, how much more trouble can I, 
get myself into and how much further down the road can I get before things just fall apart completely. But the promise that God gave them was a promise for you. In this place, I will give peace. They, they never lived to see that. They never lived to see Jesus come to that temple. And yet, by their faithfulness, you received that promise. When Haggai speaks of the treasures of the nation, that's your treasure. The treasure of the nations is your Lord. The treasure of the nations is your Savior. When he says, in this place, I will give peace, it's because your Prince of Peace came to that place. That is your peace. And so when he says, be strong, you remnants of the people, that's your strength. When he says, fear not, he is talking to you. What is your struggle today? What is it that's, that's holding you back? What is it that's holding you down? He says, be strong. And he says, fear not. Their mistake was they looked backwards. They were looking backwards at what was, at what they used to have. And all that time they spent looking backwards, they couldn't see the promise that was right before them, the promise of the glory of that was to come. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see the treasures of the nations. And the call is to focus on God in the present because that's where the promise of peace comes from. The call is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Whatever you're facing this week, whatever it is that's, that's capturing your attention, whatever it is that's keeping you from, from focusing on Christ, the, the call is to be strong. The call is to, to trust in Him. The call is to not fear, but rather to give yourself to Him. That begins by turning your eyes on, on Jesus. If He's the treasure of nations, if He's your treasure, you're not going to lose sight of Him. You're not, gonna, you're not going to, to miss Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's stand up together while we sing. I just had it on my, laid on my heart to, to maybe just say something else today after, after the message. And uh, I just wanted to share a little bit um, and, and lead us into our time of prayer. We've got a few prayer requests we need to take before the Lord. Haggai uses a very specific term when he talks about God. And he uses it over and over again. Haggai refers to God as the Lord of hosts. And he uses that term 14 times. 14 times in two chapters he refers to God as the, the Lord of hosts. More times per page than any other book of the Bible. And, and the only one I think to, to use it more is Jeremiah, who uses that phrase, Lord of hosts, 80 times. And that's over the course of 50-some chapters that, that Jeremiah does that. But 14 times in, in two chapters, Haggai refers to God as the Lord of hosts. It's a very specific phrase. And when you hear that, Lord of hosts, it literally means the Lord of armies. That He is the, the commander of armies. You know, that there's times in the Old Testament that talk about the hosts that would come against them and, and the hosts are over here. You know, that, that's the armies that were coming against them. But Haggai refers to God as the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. That phrase appears a lot in the Bible. Only a couple of times in the New Testament. Much of the Old Testament and it only appears when people are in trouble. <laughs> That's the only time the phrase Lord of hosts is used, when the people are in trouble. First person that ever uses it is a young lady. 
First person that ever uses that, that, that phrase in, in the Bible is, is a young lady. Her name's Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah is crying and she's praying and she wants a baby and, and, and she's praying and, 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 and uh, praying so hard that they think she's drunk. <laughs> I don't know if you ever prayed that hard, but you know. She's, she's crying out to God. It was a very personal issue, a very personal desire, and yet she calls on the Lord of armies to meet her and, and to take care of that. When, when the angels appear to the shepherds to announce the, uh, to, to announce the birth of Jesus, what does it say? It says that the angel along with the company of the, the great host of heaven, it's the armies of heaven, have come to announce the birth of Jesus. And what strikes me as we look at Haggai, and as we consider our own lives, as we consider our own needs, we have the Lord of hosts who is there anytime we're in trouble, who is there anytime we struggle. It says there in Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of the land of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The reason we can fear not is because the God of armies, the Lord of hosts, is on our side. Whatever it is that you're facing this week, whatever struggle it is that you've got, whatever it is that's got you down, whatever it is that's challenging you, whatever it is that you're thinking, oh no, here it comes again, fear not. Whom shall I fear? The God of hosts, the Lord of hosts is on my side. We're going to sing a song. It's a little bit different, but I think most of you know it. I'm going to ask you to stand here in a moment. We're going to sing this song, singing along with a video this morning. And we're going to use this to, to close out what we're doing today. And we'll have, a, we'll have a very quick time of prayer. But I just want you to, to stop and realize, whatever that challenge is, that you feel so alone, that you feel like you're the only one trying to fight this battle, the Lord of hosts is on your side. Be strong. Fear not. Work for I am with you. Can you stand with me while we sing this song?